This episode was sponsored by our patrons, Zeb Potter, Skylar Collins, Julie Gray, Robin Brown, Mary Jones, Eugene Lewis, Jessica Smith, Kim Hokinson, Janelise Cannon, Jill Harrigan, Jamie Lang, Maria Sanchez, Heather McKinnon, Valerie Jacobson, Chantel Oliver, Katrina and Kristen, Tamzane Weir, Caitlin McTaggart, and Eric and Carolyn Shumway. Thank you so much for being our sponsors. We couldn't do it without you. Also, we finally have a great name for What's-Her-Name fans, created by the brilliant Sierra Bickford on the What's-Her-Name France tour. If you consider yourself a mega fan of What's-Her-Name podcast, then consider calling yourself a namiac. <laughs> Courtesy of Sierra Bickford. Thanks, Sierra. Hi, Olivia. Hi, Katie. We've recently returned from our What's-Her-Name Lost Women of France tour, <sighs> which was pure magic. It was. True to form, I recorded a surprise interview the day before our tour started, when <laughs> I was just recovering from jet lag in the town of Sonlis. Who could sleep away their jet lag when this is the soundtrack coming through your bedroom window? <laughs> these bells and had to go and explore this town and the cathedral itself. I mean, San Lise, it's basically a medieval time capsule. Hmm. Cobblestone streets everywhere, you know, stone walled convents. It actually was the medieval capital of the Frankian kings hmm. and the cathedral Notre Dame. Completely beautiful inside. A lot of this audio that I recorded for this episode is from in and outside of that cathedral. But when I was inside that cathedral, just soaking it up, I learned the story of another woman who would spend every day inside the cathedral, soaking it up. Hmm. And in 1905, when she was kneeling in front of the statue of the Virgin Mary, she heard a voice. And it's said to her, Seraphine, paint, paint, and this is how you will show your love for me. Hmm. Seraphine was a cleaning lady in the village of Saint-Lys back in 1905. Uh, she doesn't know the first thing about painting, but <laughs> the Virgin Mary has spoken. Seraphine, you must become a painter. <laughs> so she did. <laughs> Uh, a painter that nobody knew about or really cared about. She gave away possibly hundreds of paintings and uh, people were just like, thank you, and threw them away. Fast forward to two years ago when a Monday night movie aired on French television telling the story of her life. Suddenly, she's one of the most famous painters in all of France. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm Katie Nelson. I'm Olivia Mickle. And this is What's Your Name? Fascinating women you've never heard of. I was lucky enough at the very last minute to meet up with... So my name is Alicia Basso Bocabella. Who is the director of the public at the museum in Sanlis, which has 
some of Seraphine's paintings. I'm the head of public in the museums of science. The translation is not perfect between French and English about my job. So. That's fascinating. We don't have that title. Bureaucracy. Yeah. French bureaucracy. Yeah. <laughs> French administration. <laughs> French bureaucracy is something to behold. It's a, it's art. <laughs> I disagree. I think it's horror. Anyway, they can often be the same thing. <laughs> so Alicia woke up one August Wednesday, two years ago, expecting your average Wednesday at the museum, you know, like <laughs> the kind of sleepy day. But when she went to open up the museum, there were 80 people out in the courtyard waiting for it to open. And she was like, what the? So they said, we're here to see Seraphine's paintings. She was like, what? <laughs> this was extra surprising to Alicia herself because with a graduate degree in art history, she had never heard of Seraphine before coming to work at the museum. <laughs> Three years ago, I didn't even know her name. I made 10 years at the university about history of arts, and I didn't learn anything about Seraphine. But the crowd was like, we saw the Monday night movie on TV. <laughs> and it was just this film called Seraphine about a forgotten painter who had lived in wartime Saint-Lys. And there was 80 people who come to see the paintings. So these are 80, like, unrelated people. It's not a group. Yes. It's just... No. Wow. Just 80 people who saw the Monday night movie and said, we will go and see those. Wow. It's amazing. <laughs> just because of the movie. She is famous because of the movie. In her lifetime, almost nobody knew about Seraphine, nor did they care. She was the village... Nice, crazy lady, ah. as Alicia says. And she was a cleaning lady her entire life. <laughs> it brings up one of life's big questions, mm. which I will now present to you. <laughs> what makes a great artist? Mm. Uh, to me, it's somebody who is breaking new ground or you're pushing something in a new way even though people aren't telling you to do it. So like it's something that's just coming from deep inside them and they're doing the thing. Yeah, I guess I was too much raised on on Sondheim and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Children in art. Anything you do, let it come from you, then it will be new. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that's a pretty great lyric because so you do it, it comes from you and then it will be new. Yes. And that's what we want. Give us more to see. Oh, or does it give us more to see? Oh, because it's new. Both. Because it comes yes. from you. And. <laughs> yes. Wow. Thank you, Sondheim. <laughs> but also, I could argue the exact opposite of that and go, like, <laughs> it's also equally valuable to do the peak beautiful form of the thing that is the thing. And right. And it doesn't have to be new. Maybe you just do it just the most beautiful, just the most pleasing to the eye. Yeah. And you don't have to be tortured or miserable or unrecognized. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or if we're going to be Plato about it, then it's the messages or the story, the ideas that the art is conveying. 
It's like I'm married to a philosopher. <laughs> what if it's all of those? Okay, yeah. Okay, so I think it's impossible it, to say what what a, a, great, a great artist, artist is. is and even what great art is because it's going to be oh. subjective. And okay. I'm just going full postmodern on you here. Yeah. There is yeah. only art. Yeah. Okay. Because I go there too in my mind. But then I also think. But if ah, everyone is yeah. great, then what no is one is. <laughs> and if you, you go to the Musée d'Orsay and you see Luncheon on the Grass yeah. and you go, ah, yeah. I, this, is, this is great art. Yeah. And it's also, there's something else because I often have the experience of encountering a piece of art and being able to rationally, logically go, that is brilliant, magnificent and wonderful. And it's not for me. It's not my thing. And it's all filtered through who has money. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we could talk about it all day. What <laughs> what makes it into the Musée d'Orsay and what doesn't? You yeah. Know? It's so fascinating in the context of the story. I am about to tell you. Hmm. But I also just, the follow-up question that I want us to have in the back of our minds is why do we create art? Hmm. Why do humans do it? Here comes Seraphine's theme, a French folk song from a village not far from Sanlis, recorded by my lovely neighbors, Suzanne and Thierry Callen, who I met in Sanlis. Thank you, Thierry and Suzanne. Seraphine Louise was born in 1864 in a small village in a poor family. Her parents were farm workers. She'd only gotten a bit of patchy schooling before age seven, and at that point, both her parents had died. Hmm. So she was a shepherdess, if you can call her that, at age seven. She's a kid <laughs> who's just yeah. sort of half-raised by her sister until her sister died. Oh. And at age 13, she was placed as a domestic servant in Paris. Hmm. She hated it. She hated it so much. And so she was transferred to a convent near saint lys She began to work in a convent in clermont de at 18 years old. To be a maid and a handywoman at the convent. <laughs> and she worked there for 20 years. <laughs> She's incredibly religious, a staunch devotee of the Virgin Mary, <laughs> and maybe, like you, I think she would have happily been a nun. <laughs> but it was never going to be an option for her. Do you know why? Because she's poor? Because she's poor. Yep. To become a nun, you had to have a dowry <laughs> for the church, and she had no dowry. Wow. She always was a cleaning lady. Then, when she was 40, she broke free 
and she'd be her own cleaning lady, thank you very much. She'd hire herself out to folks in the town of Sanlis. She sets off on her own at age 40. I love it. She rents a room and it's like up on the, the second floor of this little house hmm. um, and it's still there. And it's now the offices of a female physician, I noticed when oh. I tracked it down, which I thought was pretty cool. And it's at this phase in her life when she's stopping in the cathedral every day, kneeling before the Virgin Mary, that she hears that voice. Paint, Seraphine. So in 1905, uh, she started to paint. It was not easy for her because she didn't learn how to paint. She doesn't have paint. <laughs> she doesn't have canvas. She doesn't, I mean, she has no skills or training whatsoever. And she has no access to paint. This is a little tiny town of Sunlis. There, yeah. There's not like a craft store that you can go to. She had to do everything by herself. She's like, okay, how do you make paint? How do you get color and yeah. dye? She just starts to gather things from nature. So she tried to use pigments, natural pigments. She created herself with flower flowers, and plants, and, and earth. earth. I mean, she's just wandering the woodlands surrounding Sodenlis. She's wading through the brooks and finding bits of moss. And smash them up and mix them up with things to try to make her own paint. She doesn't have canvas or anything, so she's like painting her dishes or pieces of cardboard, paper, whatever she's got. Wow. We think we know her very first painting. We know her very first because it's here in the museum in Sanis. It's on paper and, and we thought it's the first experiment of paintings for Seraphine. And we have it. Oh. <laughs> it's watercolor painting. No skill whatsoever. I would believe a child made it. Very childish, to be honest. The only other resources that she would have had are um, like the weekly market in Sunlis, which I got to go to. The things you see. The things you can touch and smell, the colors, the pigments in a marketplace. I mean, you need money to buy a lot of it, but some of it is just trash that you could just collect. Ah. Like, what about these cherries? There's some smushed ones on the ground, you know. Ooh, look at these spices on sale. Yeah. Couple of them have spilled. Maybe just dip your finger in one. Interesting orange color. <laughs> All kinds of colors and textures. Yeah. And little rotten bits that you could take. The only occasion in her life that she ever would have had to use paint would have been like in maintaining the convent. Right. Maybe using industrial paint. Yeah. Rippling paint is the kind of industrial paint they use to paint like iron railings, oh. boats and things like that. Hmm. So it's not really paint. You know, it's like 
a harsh liquid chemical, yeah. which then dries into something hard. Yeah. That's what she used. She would wow. just use this industrial liquid and then put her own dyes in it. Wow. The museum actually has sent all of her paintings for analysis. Huh. And they have identified the actual source of many of her colors. Moss, leaves, wow. flowers. She, she took Sanlis and she made art. Wow. And in the film, this, this montage is pretty famous. And it's all based on the local lore about how she made her paints, which people in the town would talk about. Hmm. Um, and in the famous montage, she's at the butcher. And she, like, pulls a little bottle out of her pocket and she just collects blood from the butcher's <laughs> shop. And she's like, I'm going to use this to make paint. And then in another scene, she's in the cathedral and she's bowed before the statue of Mary. And she's like, I don't know how to paint. How am I going to get paint? And Mary is like, you, it's right here. Everything you need is right here. And so she takes the, the altar candles that are <laughs> melted into liquid and she just like pours them into a jar in her bag and she just <laughs> takes the wax from the cathedral candles and uses it to make paint. Wow. Now that's Utterly delightful, and I will believe it until my dying day. <laughs> Alicia and the folks who analyze the paintings say there's no blood or wax. Well, just because she took them, it doesn't mean it, it worked out for any particular painting. Exactly. She's not using all of the things in all of them. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> it's a fantasy, really. It's a romantic version. It's not a reality. It's very funny. It's very nice. It's, it's attractive to think of that, but no, no, it's not true. Some colors, they still can't figure out how she made them. In fact, wow. a lot of them, some of them are like sparkly and some are extremely matte. I would hmm. say waxy, hmm. but her methods are still mysterious. Her paints are completely unique to her. Wow. Her own distillation of San Lise itself. Hmm. So cool. And perhaps more interesting than that is her artistic approach. And as an art historian, Alicia has that particular eye, the ability to understand really what Seraphine was doing. Right. But the most interesting for me is that she didn't learn how to paint, but she used everything that great painter used in their arts. For example, you have the primary colors, red, blue, yellow. Secondary colors, orange, purple, green. Between that, you have the complementary colors. I actually forgot why complementary colors are complementary. Did you, do you remember? They don't contain any of each other? Yeah, I had forgotten that. There's no, there's no orange in, in what what's opposite is orange. required to make, what, purple? Yeah. But no, it must not be because there's red in that. So. Oh, oh right. 
Green? Oh. Yeah. There's no... Yeah. Look at our ignorance. <laughs> For example, yellow, it's complementary to purple. To have purple, you mixed red and blue. You don't have yellow in purple. So purple, it's complementary to yellow. It's the same thing between red and green and blue and orange. Okay? So she uses complementary colors extremely successfully, though nobody ever would have taught her color theory in hmm. her life. It's a theory. And when you use it in the painting, you have a composition with a very good structure. Our eyes love it. We really understand the painting with the complementary colors. <laughs> Most of people today doesn't understand how we just like it. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so nice. It's a success. But we can't say why. Mm -hmm. And Seraphine used this series without knowing. The way that she used, for example, nuances of green and uh, orange to construct all the painting and like magic, everything happened. It's beautiful. Now it's science. But she didn't know it. As she teaches herself to paint over the years, or the voices teach her to paint, as she <laughs> would probably say, her choice of subject is interesting because I would have expected her to paint religious themes. Yeah. Because for her, it's a religious act. Yeah. Like, based on what neighbors would say, she would go into these trances overnight. She'd only paint late at night when the whole town is sleeping. Hmm. And she'd be muttering the whole time that she was painting. Wow. Occasionally, the only intelligible words would be, uh, I'm doing this for the Virgin Mary. All of this is for the glory of Mary. Hmm. And she would just paint in these trances. But she didn't paint religious themes. She painted still lifes. At hmm. first, fruit. Fruit. You have orange, grapes, grenades, cherries. Uh, I, I'll try, I'm trying to translate <laughs> French to English. <laughs> the name of fruit. <laughs> and it's very, very naturalist. You have the fruit in the center of the canvas. Just a grenadine floating in the middle of a blue square. You don't have plates. You don't have table. You don't have anything. Just the fruit. It's in the center, and it's very symmetric. Symmetrical. The canvas in grenadine. Two, you can fruit. sew a part, <laughs> and no one did that. Hmm. No one did that at this time. Hmm. It's a reinterpretation of botanical books. Hmm. So the thinking is. She saw someone's botanical books while she was cleaning their house. Ah. And she noticed how those are laid out. In botanical books, you have the fruit or the flowers cut in two. You can see inside the flower, but you have a really symmetric drawing. It's exactly the same thing. Hmm. Granited fruit today are expensive. In the early 20s, they are very expensive. Seraphine didn't have the money to buy it. Hmm. So how did she see a grenadine, maybe, again, in somebody's house that she's cleaning? In somebody's house, yeah. And uh, I really love it because here you have exactly what I said about the complementary colors, orange and blue. Hmm. 
Mm. And red and green. So it works. It's simple, but it works. Mm. Impressive. Over the years, she paints and paints, and the rippling paint plus her natural pigments in it, you know, like plus moss, is super runny. So she puts her paper or her wood or her canvas on the floor, flat on the floor, and she paints on her knees. Wow. And there's a metaphor. Yeah. continued to paint and it's very important to know that yes Serafine has mental issues I said it she had voices we are all the early 20th century you don't have medication you don't have doctors so yes she had mental issues but she worked she was a hard working woman really she did a lot and a lot of painting because she loved that, because it was her calling and her progression, her evolution is, is due to her talent, of course, but also her work. Mm. It's very important to, to remember that. She's painting all the time and she just gives away the paintings to everybody in town. Like everybody, probably hundreds of paintings. Everyone in town is like, wow, that's really nice, Seraphine. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Yeah, and they toss it in the fireplace. And they burn in chimney. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You can't make this stuff up. You can't. I mean, <laughs> this is wild. I can't believe it really happened. Her yeah. life is very, very interesting there. And then. In 1912, someone wholly unexpected entered her life in Sanlis. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. There's this new guy in town. He's a German man, and he moves in just down the street from her flat, and he hires her as a cleaning lady. He is an art critic by the name of Willem Ude. 
So William Uda, he's fully funded with his own family fortune. He's just sort of out there hunting for the next great art. Mm. He's still been dealt a pretty tricky hand in life, though, because he's Jewish, mm. he's German, and he's gay. Mm. That's a not great time to be German and Jewish and gay. No, no, it sure isn't. But there he is in this small town in France, uh, just trying to immerse himself in the art world. And at some point, Seraphine, his cleaning lady, must have painted something and given it to him because that's <laughs> what she does. And he was intrigued. You know, you painted this? She would have been like, yes, I paint. I paint the visions that are given to me by the Virgin Mary. <laughs> and he's like, How, where do you get these visions from? And she said, well, sometimes if I'm sitting in San Lee's Cathedral, I'll just stare at the rose window and then I will paint the visions that come to me through the rose window. <laughs> so interesting. September day, two years after William Uda had moved to Sanlis, everyone hears the news that war has been declared. Hmm. That the final showdown between France and Germany, Britain, and all the colonial powers is finally going to commence the Great War. Hooray! S hooray! <laughs> Jubilation! Celebration in the streets! We're finally going to prove once and for all that we're the best country in the world. Yeah. And Sanlis is in northeastern France. Oh, no. Sanlis is on the edge yep. of everything. The perpetual war zone. Perpetual. William Uda is German, mm -hmm. living in France. Which is now As at war, war breaks with out. Germany. <laughs> yeah. So he's got to go. Yeah. But no worries. Everybody's like, it's okay. The war's going to be over by Christmas. Yeah. It's just like a few months and then it'll all be sorted out. So he's like, bye, Seraphine. Hey, keep painting. You've got potential. And off he goes. Almost immediately, the start of World War I, mm. Sanlis is occupied by the Germans. Mm. They just sweep in and seize the town. Local resistance was made an example of. Mm. This is like episode one of World War One, that people in the town who resist this German occupation are publicly executed. And for some reason, it's when you list the people who are executed that it just becomes so real. It was the town mayor, mm. a tanner, a carter, a cafe waiter, a baker's helper, a stonecutter. These are the people who refused to obey yeah. and were publicly executed in the center of town. Wow. The train station and the courthouse and other buildings were burned. And there's Seraphine in the middle of this. We don't know any particular details about her life during World War I. This is four years of pure hell but what we, what we can know is the history of San Lise, of what she's living through. There were two hospitals in San Lise for troops because they're right on the edge of the Western Front. They're the mm. town that's on the edge of all the trenches. Wow. 
Um, and actually, later that year in 1914, the French retook Sanlis, and it became the headquarters for the big boss to mm. phone their orders to the trenches from mm. their comfortable palatial housing in yeah. Sanlis. And it's where all of the nurses and ambulance drivers of World War One, in fact, very possibly ah, Maud Fitch herself is shuttling people from the trenches to one of those hospitals in Sunlees. I think it's highly likely she was a cleaning lady for the hospitals. Yeah. I don't see why she wouldn't be. But we can't say anything for sure. We know that she continued to paint because we have a lot of painting. We know that she was always a cleaning lady. Her paintings, though, are starting to look a lot more surreal, more like dancing the edge of reality, sort of like the visions you might expect uh, you would have if you stare into a rose window for a really long time and you're surrounded by the horrors of war that almost yeah. seems like it can't be real. Big paintings, maybe like 10 feet tall, big wow. old things. And just surrealist, almost, but uh, not like anything you've ever seen. It's sort of like plant, it's botanically surreal with strange colors and textures, Hmm. really dancing the edge of reality, as I said. And when art historians try to date her paintings and they try to like put them in order and say, here, this happened then Mm -hmm. and this happened then, then they all just get in big fights about it. But there's this one painting we have of hers, which is really weird. It's, it's got these weird plants and then a strange box and then two flags sticking out of the top. One of them is a flag of the sacred heart. Mm. And the other is the American flag. Hmm. And we have a famous story about the American who traveled through the hotel. A American pilot, after the war was over, passed just above Sanit and let a flag down, and and she painted two paintings with a flag. Hmm. Maybe it was, I don't know, a symbol of the end or of peace or hope. Yeah. But that was a hugely memorable episode in Sonley's history and then we have this American flag which just appears in one of her paintings. Wow. Need to Google these apparently. Great idea. Please do. Google it right now. And listeners, have a look at the show notes. We've got images from the museum on there. Oh, good. Whoa. Wild, right? That is not... Wow. Now it's take what you're seeing and then blow it up really big. Whoa. Yeah, it's just- They're not what I was thinking. It's a psychological experience just to look at them. And in this painting, you you can see that you have always a symmetrical uh, composition Hmm. in the center, but you can't find those trees in our forest. Hmm. (laughs) The natural is gone. Really, you know that is a tree, but you can't find it because Seraphine used her imagination. So, if it's not what you were thinking, describe looking at them. What do you What do you see? Uh, well, they're really good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> first of all, uh, I like she's she's this worked it out. She figured it out. Yeah, you wouldn't be shocked if it was in the Musée d'Orsay. No, for these are yeah. 
These are... Wow, what are these? Uh-huh. And that, and of course, like, the, the prints can't capture the different textures and, like, that this, this yeah. color is waxy and this blue is sparkling and, oh, it's just... Yeah, it feels like, just looking at them, it feels like it's it's going to be one of those where, you know, like if you're, if you, you've seen all of the Van Gogh prints ever and then you see a Van Gogh in real life. Yeah. It, it like, looks oh. like an entirely different painting. Yeah, exactly. Just because exactly. The, the texture and the, there's something about it that you just can't yeah. get. And can you see how she fills every inch? Yeah. Like the, the image, it just goes all the way to the corners, like every yeah, single bit of it is Yeah, running off the, yep. the edge yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And if you picture that it's these big paintings she's got on the floor of her little apartment and she's wow. um, on her knees bent over it, painting this thing, muttering in her trance with paint that she made herself from the natural world. And that that's, those are the visions that are coming to her. She goes to the cathedral. She sees this vision. She is able to put it on wood or canvas or paper. Wow. I love yeah, these. It's, it's almost like seeing into... I don't know, like a kaleidoscope psyche. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Indescribable. Or probably people who are better with words could describe it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I've never seen anything like this before. Ever. Fast forward to 1927. So the war has been over for almost 10 years now. The town of Sanlis is having a exhibition of local artists. And Seraphine was like, I'm a local artist. <laughs> so they let her because they're like, yeah, we love Seraphine. Everybody loves this local crazy lady. Like, yeah. <laughs> she was a nice crazy lady. We didn't hate her. So if you have an exhibition with some paintings, yes, she can exhibit some. <laughs> And so, for this exhibition, Seraphine exposed six paintings. Far away, Willem Oude reads <laughs> the announcement in the papers. And he uh. goes, Seraphine is still painting? And he came. He recognizes that she has built herself into something incredible that she is seeing and feeling accessing things nobody else is mm. and she's creating paints nobody else has and he becomes her patron he became her patron he says seraphine you've got it whatever <laughs> it is and i am gonna sell your works to the world hmm. so this moment, it's it's like a turnover. It's the turning point for her. In the Seraphine's life. I mean, before this, for, for 20, 20 years, years, she'd been painting. She, painted, she made a lot of artwork. She gave a lot of canvas to everyone. Mm. And everyone hated it. But at this time, she became an artist. 1929 is probably her biggest year. She's part of this big exhibition in Paris mm. that William Uda has put together. Um, he is convinced that he's going to create this new famous school of artists. He calls them naive artists. In other words, self-taught yeah. artists. Who People don't who didn't know the know rules. The rules. Yeah. yeah. And so they're just creating what they're creating. And people buy her stuff. Money mm -hmm. is coming in 
she can stop being a cleaning lady. In fact, mm. there's so much demand for her paintings that she's just like, okay, I'm just going to be a full-time painter. I'm just going to crank this stuff out. <laughs> but it's a period of her biggest painting in all senses. So yeah, absolutely incredible. But it's also the period when she suffers the most. Mm. When Willem Ude said to Seraphine, now you are an artist, you have the money, you have the big canvas, you have all the oil painting you want, both worlds exploded together. Let me explain. For people with schizophrenia, bipolarity, autism, these people saw the world in another way. Okay? And to survive in this world, which is not their world, they used some systems. Sports, artwork, writing, dancing, everything that helped them to survive. In French, we talk about syntomation. It's, um, it's a way to thought the world uh, through your art or your practices. It's a way to, to survive. She didn't have this little thing just for her to survive. This little thing became the affair of everyone. So, it's very important for me to understand that the paintings are awesome but also the proof that Seraphine was sick at this time. She cannot have anything but wine to survive through the world. She painted a lot of great paintings, big paintings, because she had the money now. That these ones? That these ones, for example. Mm -hmm. And this one. Ah, I see. You can see the and, uh, development of her skill. And, and this one too. Okay. So this is where the big question returns. Mm. Not just what makes a great artist, but does the why you're making it matter? Because mm. what is she painting for now? She, mm. before it was always for the Virgin Mary, for the glory of the Virgin. But now she's painting for money or fame or for the art market mm. does it matter why we make art i think you can do both you don't have to starve to be a great artist you can make paintings that sell and that are also doing what you want yeah. sometimes if you're lucky mm -hmm. right but yeah. yeah i can see that that would feel like a a looming conflict for her it seems like it didn't feel like a conflict to her, consciously at least. She was all in. When am I going to have my first solo exhibition? And she was just all about it. But her paintings start to, I don't know how to describe it. She starts to lose it. She starts to lose her hold and her paintings get less structured and more chaos. Hmm. Um and she also starts to lose her hold on her own mental health. She mm. becomes destructive 
And this period, it's her most prolific period, but she also is self-destructing at the same time. Mm. Was she making money, lots of money? Oh, not really. Uh, William Ude made money with those paintings. Mm. Seraphine, less. Mm. As I said, she was sick, so she had megalomania, so she had paranoia, mm -hmm. so she had a lot of things in ya. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and it was a period very productive for her, but also very destructive. Mm. And for that, in 1930, uh, Wilhelm Ude stopped to be her patron. Mm -hmm. I mean, she was old, she was sick. She didn't have any medication besides her wine. And she was a very difficult lady to handle. It's not an excuse, but it's a reality. People stop buying her paintings. They don't have the same magic. Now they're a little bit scary. It's mm. almost like a depiction of, of someone losing their sanity. Mm. And in a way that's um, disconcerting to look at. So she loses her patron support. The money stops coming in. And at the exact same time, she starts to get really paranoid. Back in the day, she'd had all these kind of charming fantasies of, that she would talk to people about, like that um, she has this Spanish sea captain fiancé who's going to return any day and mm. she needs to get her wedding dress ready and they're going to go off and, and get married. And so she had those kinds of stories. But mm. now her mental world, rather than romantic sea captains, um, she's constantly telling people that she's being hunted and that, you know, people are trying to murder her. Mm. For two years, she tried to paint again for her. But you can see it. It's not the same. And these paintings are very hard to understand. You can see the flower, you can see the fruit, but it's not the same structure. It's not the same composition. She abandoned complementary colors. She just tried to paint. She, she was not considered like the nice crazy lady but like the scary mm. crazy lady. Mm -hmm. And in 1932, she took all of the stuff in her house and she threw it out into the streets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was screaming and very scary and mm. becoming violent. And so in 1932, she was committed to a nearby mental asylum. Mm. The police came, they took her and they sent her at hospital, and she never left. And she never painted again. Never. And she never painted again. Oh, yeah. But she did write letters. She wrote a lot of letters. She sort of like shifted and it was it was full of the same kind of paranoia of the people mm. that are coming for me and all the you know things that are happening and um, but she 
fascinating thing that Alicia noticed when she read the letters in the archives is that they're, um, she covered every inch, just like with her paintings, like her words are spilling off the page and she wrote in all directions and she just would, she'd write one way and then another way and, and just fill the space. Nothing is empty, nothing. Everything is right, everything is right. And in those letters, you can see the evolution of the sickness. Mm. Uh, for example, she wrote that she is pregnant for seven years. Mm. And she grew old in the asylum. Mm. And while she was there, the war to end all wars, World mm. War One proved not to end all wars. Mm -hmm. And there she is in Sanlis, again, like ground zero for every European uh. war. In uh, 1942, Sanlis was occupied by the Germans again. And we are in the occupied zone here. This time though, they're Nazis and they have a very particular attitude toward the mentally ill. Oh no. The people didn't have a lot of food and Hitler hated the sick people, mm. the people with mental issues. They, he wanted them die. So, Seraphine died starving. Wow. She starved to death. Mm. Everyone in the asylum. I couldn't understand when I was first reading about her. I couldn't understand why. I just kept saying her cause of death was starvation. And I was mm. like, but she was in an asylum. That yeah. makes no sense. But then you place that asylum in 1942, France. Ugh. Amazing. She was buried in a mass pauper's grave. And for decades, Seraphine's artwork. Nobody collected her paintings, you know, or cared about them. The only ones that still existed had been purchased by William Uda's sister. She mm. had some of them. She didn't want them. And so she gave them to the town of Sunlis, who quietly put them in a room in their museum. There's one room of Seraphine paintings. Wow. Huh. And then, 80 years later, a filmmaker made a movie. Hmm. And now... She is one of France's most famous artists. Wow. Seraphine became a Mona Lisa. Wow. <laughs> the filmmaker made her a famous artist. Absolutely. Wow. What would she think? Do you think <gasps> she like that oh, yeah. she's famous? I think in her head, she always saw herself as a painter. Unfamous. Ah. In her way, of course, in her world. But I really, really think she will be thrilled about everything, uh, to see her painting uh, here in the museum. In Sanis, we have uh, the biggest collection of Seraphine's painting in Europe. Mm. And it's a recognition for her work, for all her work for 30 years in her city. I really like to work in a museum where we have a room dedicated to 
uh, female painter. Yeah. It's so cool. <laughs> when I think about Seraphine and her life and her paintings, which I have seen in real life and they are wow. stunning, I have a theory about what makes a great artist. And hmm. I guess I guess what I mean is what makes a famous artist? No, I don't. Maybe I mean a great artist. I mean both. <laughs> I think what makes a great artist and therefore a famous artist is a story. Hmm. And I think I've said this before in past episodes. Personally, I think stories are the most powerful force yeah. in human history. Seraphine lived such a rich story and put it into her paintings. When you see her paintings, they evoke something. They convey something that is unique to her. But what made her famous mm-hmm. is the story. It's when people saw the movie and mm. they learned the story of the, the blood and the wax and <laughs> the wars and her tragic end. Suddenly, these paintings... We see the paintings, but we know the story behind them. Now yeah. these paintings speak to us. She never abandoned her dream. Never. She didn't have the money to buy canvas she painted on wood. She didn't have the possibility to have all canvas. She painted with rippling. So she painted on her knees. Mm. You can imagine her at, I don't know, 65 years old, on her knees, painting in her little room Mm. because she cannot let it go. Why do we make art then? For Seraphine, I think it's a really intriguing question. It seems like it was to cope with human existence. Hmm. To, I don't know, to make art to sort of hold the madness at bay. Yeah. Or maybe to channel the divine. That's what she yeah. said she was doing. It's what thousands of years of humans in different places thought they were doing. Yeah. Whether you call it the muse or Ah, God or the Virgin Mary, something beyond us. To transcend your smaller existence. Yeah. So it makes me wonder what other paintings out there have the potential to be so famous they fetch millions at auction. I think any of them. Yeah. Any painting with a great story yeah any painting can speak volumes to all of us it was not a easy life it was a really really hard life i think it's very important to give her the success she couldn't have when she was alive i really like her
Special thanks to Alicia Bassobokabella, who I think we all can agree has the best last name in the world, and the Museums of Sunlees for sharing the story of Seraphine. Thanks also to Suzanne Callan, the neighbor I randomly met who helped translate during the interview and even found a copy of the Seraphine film at the local library for me and connected me to her accordionist husband who kindly recorded the local folk song for me. You can download that tune and find our other music on our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. Other songs were composed by Kevin McLeod, Andrew Huang, and Daniel Foster Smith. And all the ambient sounds were recorded by me, Katie Nelson, in and around Sunlees. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where I will post lots of photos and additional material from my trip, including images of the paintings. Our intern is Katie Boucher. Special shout out to everyone on the What's Her Name France tour. Thank you for coming with us on that awesome adventure. And thank you all for listening. Registration is now open on What's Your Name's Yucatan Tour 2024. Join us in Mexico as we walk in the footsteps of Zazel Ha, learn traditional Mayan cooking, tour Mayan ruins, snorkel with sea turtles, and so many more off-the-beaten-track adventures with our wonderful little band of kindred spirits. Spots are going fast, so sign up now on our website at whatsyournamepodcast.com. We can't wait to see you there. <laughs>